This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. Here is Paris again, this time on July 10th, 1895, when Harry Kessler visits the French poet Paul Verlaine. It's a wonderful description of this visit. He says, Harry Kessler says in his diaries, After lunch, visited Paul Verlaine on behalf of the magazine called Pan. Discovered with some trouble his apartment in a poor worker's home on the Rue Saint-Victor, at the top of four landings smelling of cats, coal, and the drying diapers of the proletariat. I carefully passed through a dark antechamber with warm, woolly objects hanging on the walls, smelling suggestively of underpants. Feeling my way to the door of a room, which constitutes the entire living quarters of the greatest lyrical poet of France, I knocked and entered. It is quite the worker's flat, low, dark, sparsely furnished, two or three straw chairs, a large double bed, the bed of Verlaine and his illegitimate Madame Verlaine, a white wooden table, which clearly serves for working, eating, and cooking. On the walls, yellowed photographs and sentimental lithographs, the art gallery of Madame. A great colored President Faure, which is glued to the ceiling, serves like Caesar in Hamlet. And this is a reference to, it covers a whole imperious Caesar, dead and turned to clay, might stop a whole keep the wind away from Shakespeare's Hamlet. Verlaine himself lay in bed dressed and with slippers on his feet. He didn't get up at first. His bizarre, Socrates-like head hardly rose from the disorderly pillows. Then, after some apologies and explanations, afternoon nap, rheumatism, the heat, Verlaine got out of bed, put on a coat, and led me to the window to show the flower pots and bird cages which surrounded it, a la Mimi Pinson. The impoverished great poet appeared, despite his poverty, despite the pains in his leg which he complained about. The doctor had wanted to cut it off at one point. He appeared relatively content. He praised his colorful flowers, his birds, 
whose offspring gave him every kind of fatherly pleasure. His view, the people in his neighborhood, who sing after work such dumb and moving songs, and his woman, who takes care of him so faithfully. He repeated to me several times, as if it were important to him that I notice it accurately, and at the time as a kind of preemptive explanation and apology, saying, I have someone who cares for me very well. While we leaned out of the window speaking together, she came home, a little old fat person with curly black hair, and without bothering much about her appearance, went about making their current wine. Occupied thus, she stopped only, after several requests, to open the wardrobe and give the poet a most desperately needed handkerchief. Her relationship to Verlaine is more that of a governess than a mistress, similar to that of an older but not wiser student and his old grisette. They are thrown upon each other more because of their faults than their merits. Clearly Madame takes care of the finances well, for Verlaine argued with her about my assertion that I am the representative of an important journal with money to offer. But precisely her babying, his outward helplessness, the contrast between the fat, vulgar cook and the poet of the Fates Galantes, makes the scene that much more melancholy. Ariel and Caliban were not more different in their essence, and here Ariel must toe the line in front of Caliban, and Caliban, Caliban even does Ariel a favor with his guidance. About what does the Verlaine of Sagesse and Amour speak with this fat person? Much in the tone of Verlaine's recent works, his work, his works that resemble more or less hack work, may be explained by this relationship. Nor does he seem to feel himself at home as regards writing. He showed me a photograph of himself sitting in a cafe and said, here I am in my study. Frequently, what he says sounds almost rueful. For example, the tone in which he spoke of his book, Gaspard Hosaire. Yes, I condensed in that much of my own life. Upon the mention of Artur Rimbaud, I seemed to notice a nervous flame darting in his eyes, but he then spoke calmly about him. Quote, he had a great influence on me. He was the cause of a great deal of pleasure and pain for me. We left together in pursuit of adventure. A lot of absurd things, a la Wilde, were said about us, Oscar Wilde, that is. He assured me that Rimbaud was dead. The publication of his poems was encountering difficulties because Rimbaud's sister, an old spinster, wanted to censor everything that, in her opinion, portrayed her brother in a satanic light. She wants to make of him, quote, she wants to make of him an angel, which he wasn't at all, but rather a man, or rather a child of genius, end quote. And moreover, she wants to select those poems which Rimbaud wrote when he was ten years old, and which have no literary merit. 
As I left, the old woman still was standing there, making current wine. Few spectacles could be more pathetic than to see one of the greatest and most charming poets of love find his contentment in this mediocre, vile relationship. What is love if those who have felt it and expressed it most deeply and most sacredly declare themselves in the end happy with petty domestic coziness? Verlaine, after Goethe and Heinrich Heine, it may be a good thing that we know so little about Shakespeare or Walther. Or does the dream suffice for the poet, precisely because he experiences it so intensely, and that is why, in his real life, he only seeks to satisfy his material needs? Now, if you want a, if you want a book that you can read three pages from uh, every day or night, just keep it on your bedside or somewhere in the kitchen for the next few years. That book may well be uh, Laird Easton's selection from the diaries of Harry Kessler. It's called Journey to the Abyss, the Diaries of Count Harry Kessler, 1880 to 1918. Um, as I discovered while trying to write a book about the early 20th century in Europe, a novel about the early 20th century in Europe, I couldn't pretend to uh, to do the historian's work, I came upon the diaries of Kessler, and despite how he treats Verlaine's wife, mistress, caretaker here, the, the book itself is spectacular. Um, to find uh, the diaries of a learned person put down for you in this way. Um, I will be reading other bits of it here and there, um, but it's a wonderful collection of uh, anecdotes. He seems to, Kessler seems to have known just about everyone involved in the art world in continental Europe prior to World War I. And what I could have said before reading this passage is that he was uh, independently wealthy, beyond independently wealthy. And so that explains his kind of sneer at Verlaine and uh, the uh, the apartments that he is living in. And since he is most well known as a, a critic and a diarist, uh, I think his, uh, and he was independently wealthy and didn't have to worry about those things. And as far as I can tell, he wasn't much for romantic love. All of those things sort of combine to explain his, uh, uh, his astonishment that the greatest lyrical poet of France should not only be living in what he considers, what uh, Harry Kessler considers to be a hovel, but that he should be spending his time with someone who seems so unpoetical or so, uh, so much not a match for a great poet. But as I think I uh, came across in reading from Whitman's biography a few months ago, um, it is worth uh, considering that a poet's voice and a poet's subject, um, even if it pretends to represent his or her actual life, uh, doesn't necessarily need to reflect anything in reality at all. 
and it's strange that someone as, or maybe it's not so strange, this is in uh, 1895, that someone as knowledgeable and cultured and traveled and uh, educated as Harry Kessler could say it may be a good thing that we know so little about Shakespeare and Walther because if perhaps the idea is if we knew more we would find out that they uh, that their entire lives were not filled with poetical things but you might say uh, only someone as cultured and educated and traveled and moneyed as Kessler could possibly think such a thing. In any case, uh, there are other visits he makes that I will share here. He goes to visit Claude Monet at one point. He goes to visit Auguste Rodin at one point. Uh, he has wonderful travel logs in uh, Rome talking about art, which I want to share, but this seemed to be a nice little picture to share tonight. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.